Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 64. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with Matthew Fulmer, Director of Cyber Threat Intelligence at BlockWorks. Hey, thanks for being with us on the show today, Matthew. It's a real honor to have you here. Uh, pleasure to be here, Christopher. Pleasure to be here. To get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, sure. Well, my name is Matthew Fulmer. I am currently the Director of Cyber Threat Intelligence at BlockWorks. We are a master MSSP, and we like to help everybody out and make sure they have a proper security stack and that they are protected against both the known and the unknown. Looking at your work history, it appears you started out as an infrastructure engineer a little over a decade ago before joining McAfee in 2014. How did you get started working in technology and what eventually made you make the jump to security? I blame my dad. I really do. So my both my parents were in technology. They, they worked with this stuff called mainframes. My dad was a mainframe programmer and my mom used to help with the key cards back when key cards were a thing for the, the machines. So when I was younger, uh, my dad, you know, had computers and I liked playing with the computer and he gave me a screwdriver when I was like six and said, take it apart. Let's upgrade it. I mean, generally not something you do to a six year old, especially with how pricey computers were back in like, you know, the eighties, but he had faith that I wouldn't screw something up. So we took it apart. We upgraded it from a 286 to a 486. We added more RAM to it because we got to the last part of King's Quest. I think it was three. And a screen popped up saying that we didn't have RAM to actually finish the game. So Was RAM still measured in megabytes at that time? It was. It was. Which is really, really scary to think about. Like, my phone has more storage by thousands of times than what my computer originally had so you know he taught me how to upgrade computers he taught me how to code i do not like coding at all that is that is the one thing i will say i never liked coding i walked out of a c plus plus class because i couldn't deal with it i'm not a fan of pointers either <laughs> i i did i did one class i walked home he asked me how the class went and i said you'll be really proud of me i made a decision i quit he my mom laughed he looked at me and he couldn't believe why i was like there no there's just, it's just not for me like at this time I had been doing all kinds of other activities with computers that were way more fun. So he taught me all of this really fun stuff and it just kind of continued growing. I taught myself networking. I taught myself, you know, how to continuously upgrade my machines as things just progressed. And, you know, that just, I found I had a passion for everything that was technology. And then when I found out what security was, I found out, you know, that there was, a place for me that I could actually have fun playing the things that I'd been learning about, but also make an impact to help keep people safe. My mindset instantly shifted and I was, I was completely sold on it. Yeah. It's a never ending problem that needs to be solved all the time, right? It's, it's perfect people to have the, uh, the Rubik's disease. You have to find the solution to the puzzle. The problem is this puzzle never has a solution. It's one step away from being solved, and then somebody takes a hammer to it, and all the pieces just fall apart again. 
and then you have to restart all over. I, I actually, that's a great analogy. I, I love that. From some of your about section and some of the recommendations I read people wrote for you, uh, I can see that you're a dedicated lifelong learner. Uh, what's your most recent area of study? Uh, most recently, uh, I've really been working on trying to understand Python. So that thing about I hate coding. I've I've learned that Python and other, you know, language models that you can actually work with are highly beneficial. Python has the capability that you can build really anything that you're you set your mind to. So it's one of those things where you could do it the long way, or you can just embrace the fact that you may have to learn something that isn't your favorite thing in the world, but it at the end it's going to make your life substantially easier. And that's just, that's one of the things like you can, you can actually take Python and you can build a language model out of Python to make your own chatbot. Now it's not going to be as good as ChatGPT or Bard or any of these other ones that are out there, but I don't know anybody that, uh, you know, looking at the, the recent news that actually just popped up today about Falcon, which is the, they call it Falcon 180B. It was 4,096 NVIDIA GPUs that were used to train this thing for 7 million GPU hours. I'm not going to have that level of resources. I would hate to see what that Amazon bill looks like. Uh, yeah, that, that, and that's what they were using. They were actually using uh, Amazon, the SageMaker, for the training on it. And I, I mean, it came out and it's like, 2.5 times more advanced than what Facebook's uh, Llama 2 was in the first iteration. So, I mean, this is this is where it's... You have to embrace the things that sometimes are not your favorite because... Yeah, and Python's really accessible as a language. I love working with it, and I know they've made some very significant improvements to its efficiency recently. They They definitely have. A buddy of mine was actually uh when we were at deep instinct together he sat down he he too did not know python to start out and he put himself through a class and started building some stuff with python that was just so amazing and made things so much easier to do and we could accomplish everything by leveraging python to then call apis to basically you know any task that we wanted it to complete it could complete and i i was amazed and that really, it kind of made me think, you know, maybe this isn't terrible. Maybe, maybe I do have to actually learn some of this. I always felt like Python replaced Perl as the duct tape of the internet. I don't know if you remember Perl, but it, it I do. had some of I that do. wizard wizardry around it where you could just connect things and make things happen. And maybe wasn't the most elegant thing in the world, but could get it done. I look at all levels of scripting, Python, Perl, PHP. It, that, it's just, there's it, it's like the Wizard of Oz. There's, you know all this coding and then there's some guy behind a curtain somewhere that you know this thing they're saying don't look behind the curtain <laughs> they're doing magic and i i mean it's amazing all right so after reading a bunch of the articles you've written i had a hard time honing in on just one thing we could talk about you have a very wide breadth of knowledge and i think it'd be interesting to just talk about enterprise security in general if that's okay with you yeah absolutely all right so uh, first one I have, what kind of issues have you seen with the move towards a remote first workforce? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, okay, so 
fortunately, I was remote before COVID hit. I was actually remote for two-ish years before that that all set in. So I got to see what it was like before COVID, and then I got to see what happened you know, when COVID hit and everybody started scrambling. The one thing I can say is that enterprises were woefully ill-prepared for any kind of a shift that did not involve you sitting in a physical location. The infrastructure they had in place did not have the capabilities. They did not have anything set up that would really keep everybody, or more importantly, their data safe when somebody was out of the office. There were no practices. There were no policies. There were really not much that that people were able to adhere to. With us, initially, and this is while I was at McAfee, if I took my laptop out of the office and I tried to do stuff with it, like if I just tried to browse the internet, I couldn't. If I was connected to the VPN, I could. Because we had both location-aware and connection-aware policies that were set up that prevented us from using the laptop in a manner that wasn't designed for work. Now, with remote work, you run into a number of, let's just say, terrible situations. Coffee so, shops, not spots. <laughs> well, not even that. Uh, you know, what's the number one risk to corporate data? It's the employees. I mean, I hate to say it, but your employees are going to be where you invariably will suffer some form of a loss if they're not careful. So you're sending laptops home with people. Okay. Well, everybody's at home. There is no monitoring. People are going to be as up on their security practices. They're not going to be locking their screens. They're not going to be doing a whole bunch of stuff. Worse yet, some of these people have some beastly laptops. Well, what's going to happen when they're not using a laptop? They've got kids. Kids may want to use a laptop. Did you ever think about the fact that kids may install something and then get socially engineered and somebody gets access to their laptop? Wouldn't be the first time. There's countless things out there. I mean, there's executables for lawbaz and lawbends that are purely designed for certain things that gamers would try to install. Um, What was it? Razer was hit with, uh, with one of the, with a replacement executable. Rocket was hit with a replacement executable for their software. I mean, it's only a matter of time until somebody gets their hands on something on a computer that they shouldn't, and there you go. Is there specific mitigation or architectural approaches that you recommend for making a work-from-home workforce more secure? Honestly, I'm a very firm believer in having a proper security stack in place. But even with the most advanced security stack in the world, you still have the element of the user that you have to take into consideration. You can have a perfectly built infrastructure that is capable for remote work and everything else. And then over in the other corner, you can have Fred. And I guarantee you, Fred is a more formidable opponent than any security that you have put in place because the the human, the, the element of human error is going to be something that you cannot predict. We do things that are absolutely crazy for apparently no rhyme or reason sometimes, just because it seems like it might be a fun thing to do. But 
that could be really bad when it comes to any kind of infrastructure. But limiting the capabilities of what the laptops can do, specifically when you're not using them for work purposes, is a good start. When you have location-aware, connection-aware groups, all your data is flowing through you know, your firewall, through your, when you're tunneled into you know, your protection scheme. That's a start. Because you're not going to have somebody that's going to be, you know, using it for random purposes. But they still may. Again, we do things for weird reasons. So they may still try to go and download torrents using the work machine while connected to the VPN. Don't know why, but some people do these things. But it helps to try and limit that. It helps to try and keep the, I guess, the attack surface to a much smaller level there's still going to be things you're not going to be able to tell the user not to do, you know, quickly. They're going to have to be very much more up on the hygiene of security, not clicking on random links, being careful of what they install, etc. But at least with proper policies, a proper security stack, you can lessen the chance that something is going to actually get in there. Yeah, I'm a big proponent for thin clients like Chromebooks and stuff like that for that very reason. Yeah, that's what uh, my wife actually had that for. You know, she worked at a school uh, school system, and they gave Chromebooks, and that was the number one thing. How do I install this? How do I do that? You don't. You don't. You don't. Well, why do I have this? Because you have to have something, but they don't trust you enough to use a real computer. Or it's just not required. It's not about trust, right? Because we... No, we... no, it was about trust. <laughs> <laughs> it was 100% about trust. Uh, looking lately at how many school systems are being actually hit by ransomware, more people need to adopt the, uh, the, the restrictions that are put in place of things that cannot run normal Windows apps. Like, put them on those Chromebooks. Put them on something that's super thin. Put them on minimalist. I mean... It's not worth it to get, to have, you know, all of the access in the world if all of the data that you have is going to end up as fair game out on the inter- or out on the dark web. I mean, that's just, it doesn't help. In your opinion, does AV still have an important role in an enterprise security posture? Interesting question. So the AV solutions, I would say yes and no. AV solutions are kind of double-sided at this point. Now, there's one side that falls on the let's detect it and then let's respond to it, you know, form of of protection. That was great 12 years ago. Now, by the time something is detected and you're looking to make a response on it, you've already, you're already right. Something is going terribly wrong in your environment and what you're seeing is probably not the full picture of what's actually going on in your environment. The other option is go left of boom prevention. Now, looking at all of the threats, the threat landscape, looking at the fact that in a one week period, there were over 200 new ransoms that were done by threat actors and over a hundred of those being in the United States. Prevention is is going to be a necessity. It's no longer optional. Now, in order to prevent the unknowns, like new variants of ransomware, new variants of malware, new rats, 
you need something that is not relying on content being updated daily or weekly or whenever they decide to update it. You need something that is actively learning, actively adapting, and is capable of pure prevention in the unknown. Anybody should be able to detect the known. If there's something out there that somebody has been hit with and there's a sample, there is no excuse for any other AV to not pick that up. But being able to prevent things that are 100% unknown, that nobody knows about, that is, that's, that's the dream. And it, that dream exists. It has actually come to fruition. And, you know, Blockworks actually leverages a solution of that nature that operates in the realm of the unknown that has a supremely low false positive rate. We're talking less than a fraction of a percent false positive rate over billions or hundreds of billions of files that have been scanned. I believe it's actually close to trillions in one instance. Wow. I mean, that's the, the it, it exists. AV is still a very, very formidable solution for the endpoint, but you have to make sure that that's not the only thing you have. You need that layering. You need perimeter, you need endpoint, you need perimeter, you need everything set up and working in harmony together so that you have, as as best you can, a way of minimizing that attack surface. You want to take it from your entire environment down to something that's like that small so it's easy to actually prevent against. And relying on something that's going to be detection and response related that doesn't help. It lessens your, your overall surface. But once it gets in, the potential now becomes the entire surface that they could be playing with again. So when looking at the endpoint versus a perimeter, is one more important than the other for a security team to focus on, or is it part and parcel? I would say they're both, they're both equally important. The problem that you're going to run into with security teams, and I know this, this probably will bring up another topic, Security teams are vastly overworked and they're vastly understaffed. There are so many jobs in cyber right now that are not filled. They're, they're vacant because the talent, it, it's not that there's not talent. It's that there's not a desire to develop that talent. So teams are having to decide where do they want to actually focus on? Do they want to focus on the alerts that are coming in from their endpoint? Or do they want to focus on things coming in from the perimeter? A lot of times, I hate to say this, they're choosing none. They're so just, they're so hammered and they're so beaten down by alert fatigue of seeing all these notifications just continuously coming in that they almost get to the, the mindset of, why bother? If I resolve this one, there's 10 more that are going to come in. Nonstop, every day, same thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it causes a crazy amount of burnout. So you need to find a solution that has, you know, that minimal false positive that, that is going to work to help your team to lessen the amount of work they have to actually do. Because when there's any, and when there's an event that comes through, they know that it's something that's valid or that there's a very minimal chance that it's a false positive. Having that lessened amount of alerts on one side can help you to focus on the other side. It can help you to bolster your defenses because your team's not going to be burnt out. They're not going to be just sitting there miserable. 
this feels like one of those areas where AI has a lot of potential to eliminate some of the drudgery. I know we've seen the large language models this year, and we've seen a lot of impressive sort of chatbot style stuff, but I haven't seen anything that really makes me think things are going to change in security. Are you aware of any technologies or emerging companies that are making an impact with this kind of alert fatigue stuff? So the uh, the program that we actually leverage on our side really does that. It If you look at it, most security providers like to claim that they are, you know, friends with artificial intelligence, that they leverage artificial intelligence. They don't tell you that artificial intelligence has multiple different subsets. A lot of times the artificial intelligence that they are talking about is machine learning. Machine learning is fantastic. It has numerous benefits, but it still requires a human to define the parameters of what you're looking at. Now, on the other side, you have deep learning. Deep learning is where major strides are being made because instead of, you know, only feeding certain amounts of data or certain sets of data and building, you know, parameters to gate the data and help define, you know, all the criteria with deep learning, you can just literally throw all the data at it and it will churn through the data in no time and it will start to make the necessary connections on how things should be. Yes, there's still a training model that is applied to it, but it's a lot more intelligent. And that's the solution that we actually leverage. Our solution has deep learning in it. That's how it's able to make these connections. It's how I'm able to take a brand new unknown sample of ransomware that, you know, comes out from our evil or Lockbit alpha, who basically is Lockbit at this point. And I can throw it at a two-year-old version of this software, and it still shuts it down. While others... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I was a big fan of the Google Deep Learning stuff when uh, they had it beat the standing Go champion, which is something they didn't predict computers were going to be able to do for another 15 years or so. So I think it blew a lot of people's minds that it was able to adapt to such a complex game that has so many permutations that it's more bits than that exist in the universe. I'm, I'm trying to remember what they mentioned about artificial intelligence, specifically deep learning at, at the point that we're at, but it was something along the lines of by 2025, they were anticipating if we keep developing AI at the rate that we are, that AI will officially be able to pass a Turing test on its own very shortly. Well, I think if you look at chat GPT now, you know, depends how you define the Turing test, but I think it, it could probably fool my mom or dad that they were talking to a real person or. Oh, it, it definitely could. Um, now the one thing that I will say about GPT, and this is, this is not a slight against open AI at all. Somehow they made it they made chat GPT kind of dumber <laughs> with the latest release. I don't know how uh, there were some tests that were done where, you know, the new the new language model came out and it was missing simple questions like full on missing simple questions. Now, one would actually think, OK, maybe that's a bad thing. I'm sitting here looking at it like hey, it's pretending to be human because we miss simple things all the time. So now it's just trying to learn. It's trying to become more like us so that it can blend in and, you know. I wonder if there's some degradation there too, because 
somebody pointed out to me that, you know, the chat GPT comes out, all the marketers are leaning into it hard and using it to generate content on the web. And then when you create the next model, you're sucking in all the content on the web, which now 10 or 20% has been produced by the first iteration of the model. So I, I feel like you start to get some slipping. So with those large language models, and if you look at the uh, the license agreement when you're using ChatGPT, it says that anything that you are providing can be used for training. Okay, that's great. Um, what if you're giving it the wrong information? What if you're intentionally giving it the wrong information? And believe me, there are people out there that are, you know, feeding it the wrong information to try and hinder the capabilities of a large language model and, and, you know, just because they're scared of the technology. I'm not scared of ChatGPT. I'm not scared that at some point we may end up with robot overlords. What scares me is that people are not, not willing to embrace the technology to find a way to safely develop it. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think the safest way going forward is to probably merge with it, but that, that gets a little dark real quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that, you know, there's a, I can't remember what it's, what it's called off the top of my head. But there's a point where, you know, theoretically, humanity will be able to merge with machines. I mean, that actually, part of me sits, is, is terrified of that. But another part of me is like, I could be a robot. <laughs> I just wonder what that would be like. Yeah. Yeah. There's the future. It's it, somebody I was listening to made a statement which i thought was very apt and it was you know this is the first time in human history where nobody on the planet can tell you what it's going to look like in 10 years really can't yeah i mean it's it's very interesting what the capabilities are with artificial intelligence and i honestly think that in the history of the world we are at a point right now where we have some of the smartest people that have ever existed and even they are confused about what's going to come next. Yeah. Yeah, there's no predicting it. Whereas, you know, a couple generations ago, your your parents could probably give you a pretty good idea of how to prepare for life, what to expect, go through the different stages. And now, you know, I with my own children, and I think about, I don't know what to tell them except for, like, learn how to learn and have fun because who knows what's going to happen. I, yeah, I'm, I love the same thing. I keep trying to keep trying to educate them. And I'm like, look, you know, you need to, you need to make sure that you're learning everything that you can. There are going to be advancements that are going to make your life easier or more terrifying. I'm not sure which, you know, from the, from the eyes of a child, but I mean, the, at the end of the day, we just kind of have to go with it. Yeah. The genie's out of the bottle. There's no going back. Exactly. We can't be scared of progress we just kind of have to accept that progress is going to happen now we can either be a part of that progress or we can sit on the sidelines yelling at progress either way it's still going to move forward it's just you can either be with it or you can you know sit on the outskirts and try to avoid it mm -hmm. okay got a little off the track there but i'm gonna pull us back in 
in your opinion, what do you think the biggest challenges facing enterprise security teams are right now? Uh, well, we actually touched on it and it was, it, it's just the amount of burnout. It's the lack of staffing that they have. It's, I mean, there's countless levels of, of work that need to be done, but there's just not the bodies to make that workable. I mean, there's a work-life balance that has to exist. Look at most of the posts that you see from people that are in cyber. They're frustrated. They're stressed. They're at the end of their rope. The candle's been burned at both ends. They don't know what to do. The sad thing is, it's not on them to figure out what to do. This comes down to a leadership thing. This comes down to the difference between managers and leaders. Companies need to embrace leaders. They don't need managers. And you don't need somebody that says, look how good I am. I put you in this seat. No, what you need to be is you need somebody that's there saying, hey, how can I help you to go from this seat to this seat? And then we can bring somebody in for you know where you were and we can continue training and growing. And that's, that's one of the things that you're finding. There's countless, countless job wrecks out there for entry level. And they're asking for five years experience for entry level. That's not entry level. You're, you're asking and you're wanting to pay people like pennies on a dollar, but you're asking them to have all of this experience up front. That, that is not going to make anybody want to join and work in a company. I mean, it's, there's a whole bunch of different things that are, that are really hitting everybody all at once. The remote work aspect, people have realized that they don't want to spend an hour and a half to two hours each day, maybe more, depending on how far away they live, driving to and from an office. When you're at that office, if something happens, you then have to leave the office, go take care of it. You're probably not going to be able to go back. So that's time lost. But yet companies are trying to mandate people going back into the office and the workers don't want to. So there needs to be a balance. We need to find a way to have people with a proper work-life balance where they're not completely overloaded, not completely stressed, not to the point that they just want to quit and change career and go become a barista because it's less stress. I've seen people do that. It's, it's a very interesting career change, but they're less stressed. They find happiness in not having all of the chaos. We need to find a way to bolster the ranks that we have. These jobs, we could easily fill them. There are plenty of people out there that want to learn, that want to grow, that want to get into the cyber field. But where are the people that say they have this amazing culture in their companies, that they're all about the employees? Where are they? Why aren't they stepping up and saying, hey, we will train you? It shouldn't be about a fear of if they train, if you train somebody and they leave. I talked with a, with a, with, you know, one of my bosses prior to me leaving and coming over here to Blockworks. And, you know, one of the things I told him was I feel bad because I'm leaving. And he said, no, it's okay. This goes down as a success for me because everything that you have done you can now carry on someplace else and show the value of what we all worked on together. 
That's a great attitude. That's you shouldn't have to worry about that. If you if you bring somebody in, you train them. You know what? Invariably, you're going to lose some people. They're going to get offers. They're going to take the offers. There's no reason worrying about that. There are so many people out there that want to learn. Yeah, I worry less about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I recently spoke with David Seidman, who's the head of security platform and Intel at Robinhood. And yeah, if I'll send you the link to the episode and I'll put it in the show notes. But he has a really great philosophy around this and talks a lot about, you know, meeting with new employees when they come on board, trying to find out where they want to go in their career, building a plan for them so that they always feel like they're moving forward and they are moving forward. And he said, you know, part of the pain of that is that eventually they become mature enough and there's not enough mature positions that they leave the company. But if you keep things rolling and have new people coming in all the time, you can really create a a workplace where people want to be and where they feel like they're growing and evolving. And if somebody does leave like that, and, and I'm sure, you know, if you, if you asked him about this, when somebody does leave like that, they've grown, they've matured to the point that they need to expand and the company cannot help them with that. It's much better to have them leave on their own accord and the company to support them and say, we want you to succeed, whether it's here or not, than to try and, you know, stifle them and keep them at the company for personal reasons. An employee, whether they're current or former, is one of the biggest supporters or detractors that you will ever have. If they're happy when they leave and you supported them, you're going to have an evangelist that's out there that if somebody is looking and there's a job that's open, they're going to recommend quality people to you because they're going to know the quality that you put into them. And that's, that's what's missing right now from enterprises. We've lost touch with the employee. We've lost touch with what's important to developing technology talent. It's not the technology. I always say, I can teach anybody tech. I can't teach somebody the right habits to have as an employee. I can't teach you to have the desire to want to learn. However, without having the right methods in place, I can kill that desire very quickly. And that's not what you want. 100%. Okay, this is the last one I have for you. It's the one I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the cybersecurity industry in the future? It's going to get crazy. I mean, it's already crazy. My prediction is we've already we've already had the discussions before about adversarial AI and AI versus AI battles. That's already ongoing. Chad GPT has opened the floodgates on that. Next, we're going to have to try and find a way to basically have the better AI. I mean, I hate to say it, but everything right now is going to have to be focused on artificial intelligence. You're going to have to try and, I mean, there's going to be more more adoption of people that are familiar with building, training, cataloging, everything that needs to go into everything that is AI. AI is going to revolutionize the entire cyber industry. It's probably going to revolutionize countless industries. 
But the cyber industry is where it's really going to make a difference because a lot of the things that analysts are running into can theoretically be augmented with artificial intelligence. Please note, I'm not saying this is the end of a lot of jobs in cybersecurity. I'm actually saying this may actually increase the jobs in cybersecurity based on all the different roles that may need to be filled because of the advent and the adoption of AI. Just, I mean, hop on LinkedIn and look and see how many, how many roles have opened up surrounding AI in the last few months. It is absolutely ridiculous. Every company wants somebody that does something with AI. And then you're going to need people that are under them to help them with all of that. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be huge. I've even seen the role of a chief AI officer at companies. I, now. I saw that too. Um, you don't need one chief AI officer. You need multiple. You need a, you basically need a chief AI officer that's over every department to help identify the items that need to be protected from AI. One of the biggest threats I think you're going to find is somebody finding a way to leverage artificial intelligence to extricate data from an environment. Okay, well, who is in charge over each one of these departments of ensuring the data that somebody's trying to get out can't? Who's shielding it from AI? Who's, you know, maintaining all of the barriers to gatekeep that information? I'm sure you heard about the incident with Samsung. Oh, just recently, yeah. Yeah. They uploaded source code to ChatGPT? Yeah, despite the uh, license agreement. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that's always fun when your IP ends up on ChatGPT and is now public. Um, that's the kind of things that are going to need oversight. And you're going to need AI officers over each one of your departments that's helping design policies specific for your department on acceptable use of artificial intelligence. That would help things. There were no policies. That's why they ended up using it. There was nothing that said, this is a bad idea. Don't do it. They just thought, hey, there's this language model. Maybe it can help us find an issue that we that we haven't you know understood. I mean, it did helped everybody else in the world also find their source code but i mean congratulations you found that error you were looking for so yeah the, the i mean ai is going to be a huge thing it's going to be a massive drive for you know employment but it's also going to be a nightmare for security because we have to find ways to save ourselves from ourselves while trying to leverage ai very cool well, thanks so much for being on the show with me today, Matthew. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, maybe we can Anytime. we can go deep on AI or, or something along those lines. I, I, I like the nerdy stuff, so I appreciate this conversation a lot. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It was absolutely amazing. Cheers. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.